part two it is. Um, Luke chapter four, let me remind you as you're turning there, uh, you can find this in our ESVs on page 859, if you picked up a Bible on the way in. Let me remind you what we looked at last week, is this really is a continuation. Uh, And without the foundation that we laid in the previous study, everything that you hear today will be meaningless. That's because last week we looked specifically at Christ, our Savior. Christ, the one who is victorious over sin and temptation on our behalf. Uh, The one who was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted uh, and to be tried on behalf of his human elect, whom he was saving to himself, uh, the one who emerged victorious. And we also saw that uh, though Satan is a real and powerful enemy, yet he has been bound, he has been defeated, uh, and because Christ is our victorious champion and our Savior, there is hope. Now, today, uh, by God's grace, we're going to turn and see Christ not just as our victor, not just as our Savior, uh, but Christ as our example. And pray that the Lord would teach us to walk the same steps that he walked and follow the way that he resisted temptation. So we are studying today Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 13 again. And before we read those verses together, please uh, join me as we pray to the Lord. O righteous God, giver of all good gifts, and you who did not withhold your Son, but gave him up for us. We come to you in constant need of your mercy, of your kindness. O Lord, and when we come to think of temptation, when we come to think of sin, our consciences could so easily accuse us and remind us of all the ways and all the temptations that we have failed, even this morning before coming to your word. And so as we look into your word, help us to see Christ. Help us to walk with Christ. Gracious Lord, do a work of sanctification in the lives of your people today as you make us more and more like Christ and you cause us to die more and more to sin and to live unto you. We pray in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, the uh, Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a helpful little book. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in the introduction to that little book, uh, Thomas Brooks tells us that there are four things uh, that every Christian needs to study well and often. He says, if you would be safe in this life and you would be happy in the next, you must strive always to learn more and more about Christ, the Scriptures, your own heart, and the devices of Satan. Four things, four topics that ought to fill your mind and your prayers, and if we're honest, four topics that could fill your mind and your prayers for a lifetime at least. Consider Christ. To look on Christ is to to see the fairest of 10,000, the Son who reveals the Father whom no eye has seen, and we could, and by God's grace, are promised that we will spend an eternity knowing Him and delighting in Him more and more and considering Christ our Savior. And then there are the Scriptures. You've heard the saying. It's been attributed to everybody from Augustine to Spurgeon and a whole lot of people in between. The saying that says that the Scriptures are so shallow that uh, a child can splash in them, and yet they are so deep that they could drown an elephant. I'm not sure if you'd rather be uh, compared to a toddler or to an elephant, Uh, but it's true nonetheless. Many scholars, countless scholars throughout the ages, uh, have given their entire lives to the study of the Scriptures, and the well still hasn't run dry. We're always coming up with new lessons to learn and, and, and other commentaries to publish, it seems. And then, uh, considering the human heart, it's only 17 chapters into Jeremiah's ministry when we get the sense that the prophet throws up his hands and simply says, I give up. I can't do it. I can't figure it out because the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick and who can understand it? A deep well. Out of the heart come blessings and cursings. Salt water and fresh and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and even you aren't sure what will come out of your heart on any given day. And it makes you thankful that the Lord works with you slowly. And he does not uncover the murky depths of your own heart all at once, but he draws them out little by little, and you could spend your entire life getting to know these things and also getting to know more and more Satan's devices. The story is told uh, of a sweet old saint uh, who always had uh, the ability to see the best and even the worst people. And one day her pastor joked to her, and he said, I bet you could even find something encouraging to say about the devil. And she responded, well, you do have to admire his persistence. (laughs) And it's true. The devil is persistent. The devil is inventive. The devil is almost artistic in the way that he's able to present the same old boring sins always in fresh and lively and uh, intoxicating ways. And it leaves us with this dilemma. Yes, we ought to be on guard against the schemes of the devil. We ought to be guarding our hearts against the devices of Satan. But how do you guard against an attack that seems like it could come from any direction at any moment without any warning? Well, today we are looking again at Christ, our Savior, our example The one led into the the wilderness uh, by the Spirit to be tempted. The one who emerged victorious Uh, the one who resisted the devil until the devil fled from him. 
And Lord willing, today, uh, by looking to Christ, we will see the one who resisted in order to teach us how we also may resist the schemes of the devil. Let me suggest there are three things uh, that we're going to see today. We're going to look first at Satan's goal. What does he want in tempting uh, the people of God? Satan's goal. Second, at Jesus' victory, how is it that Jesus withstood the onslaught of the evil one? And finally, we will see the pattern that he gives to us. Satan's goal, Jesus' victory, and our pattern. We begin with Satan's goal. In the, uh, the old movie, uh, Patton, it was made way before I was born. Uh, 1970, Patton came out, but if you've seen the movie, you know uh, that the hero of the story is U.S. General George S. Patton. And he is leading U.S. forces during World War II, uh, and particularly he's, he's leading uh, army infantry and, uh, and a brigade of tanks, I suppose, across northern Africa, and he's going to engage with the enemy. Uh, the German army led uh, by er Erwin Rommel. Now, the problem for Patton uh, in that movie, and in real life, really, is that the German army was uh, incredibly strong. They were motivated, they were well-equipped, uh, and their tanks, quite frankly, were more powerful uh, and better armored than the American tanks. And so Patton had uh, a conflict there. He had a problem, but he did have a secret weapon, and the secret weapon that Patton had was strategy. Patton was always studying his enemy. He was always uh, gauging their moves, trying to guess where the attack would come from next. And several scenes in that movie show Patton reading a book uh, on infantry maneuvers uh, published by Erwin Rommel himself. And so there is a scene where the German attack turns into a German retreat, and the American army is pushing forward, and the, uh, the scene closes in, and you see Patton hanging out of the front of a Sherman tank and wagging his finger and saying, Rommel, I read your book. And it was how he was able to overcome. And battles happen like that. Even if you are outgunned, it is possible to get the upper hand if you have a little bit of intelligence. If you know what your enemy is about and where he might attack, but that is just the problem when it comes to dealing with the devil. Satan uses so many devices to tempt us to sin that we lose track of them all. That book that I was telling you about, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, well, in that book, Thomas Brooks suggests at least 38 specific different devices that the devil uses to entrap the people of God. Tactics like presenting the bait of sin while hiding the hook of judgment. Tactics like persuading men that the vast majority of humanity cares very little about God's ways and that you really are on the outside of things, and so why even bother? And on he goes for 36 more specific tactics, and we could take that 36 and we could multiply them exponentially by an almost staggering number of individual sins, and suddenly our head is swimming. And Brooks says, even with those 38, we are only scratching the surface. And so how can we possibly have the right intelligence? How can we know where the devil is going to strike? We could exhaust ourselves always guarding against anger and guarding against gossip and guarding against slothfulness and gluttony and immorality and prayerlessness and hatred and violence and dishonesty and suddenly be caught off guard by the fact that temptation shows up by grabbing us by our ingratitude. We weren't 
watching out for ingratitude. We didn't even think that it was something we had to worry about, but there it is. Okay, so we gird our loins and we start to guard against ingratitude. And oh, just a minute, you've forgotten about materialism and the devil gets another foothold. Our former senior pastor, Jerry Maguire, used to talk about the fight with sin like a game of whack-a-mole. You hit one and another one pops up and it's this never-ending cycle. And is that what resisting temptation is supposed to look like? Are we only ever able to get the upper hand on our temptation if we are able to guess and predict successfully where Satan will strike at just the right moment and guard in just that particular part of our lives? Proverbs 4, 23 has a helpful reminder for us. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We can lose track of that, can't we? While we're going around trying to put out the little individual fires and the skirmishes that Satan is waging against us to draw us out of the city and to leave it unprotected, we we forget that in the heart, in what we might call the, the inner person, but what the Bible calls the heart, the inner man, there is a, a command center of sorts. Everything we do flows from the heart, out of the heart. The mouth speaks, out of the heart flows springs of life. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. You get the idea. And that ought to be a reminder to us. Yes, it's true, the devil has many devices. The devil has many tactics to tempt us, but the devil has only one goal in mind. And that is to get to the heart. That is to attack the inner man. In order to draw the heart of man away from God and toward the lusts that gratify the self. That is his goal. And it doesn't matter to Satan if gossip will do the trick or if murder will do the trick. All he wants is to get to the heart. Now we could be a little bit more specific. Not only does the devil want to get to the heart, but he wants to get to the heart because it is from the heart that he is able to get you to disbelieve what God has said about himself. He wants to get to the heart because that is where he can get you to disbelieve God's word, his commands, his promises, what he has said he is doing in your life, the way that he is watching over you and the way that he loves his children. That's what he wants is for you to disbelieve God's word And he does it, he gets there by pulling on the lever of your pride. Satan's goal is to lure you into a prideful disbelief of God and what he has said. Isn't that the way that temptation works? Can't we boil it all down to that one principle? Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 gives us Satan's very first words into humanity. And what are they? Has God really said Really? Has God actually told you this? That's where Satan was headed with humanity all along. He was trying to get Eve to disbelieve God's commands and his promises. He's trying to get her to listen to her own desires rather than what God has said. And he did it by suggesting the idea that God was holding out on her and actually she deserved much better than what God was giving her. Oh, the... God says you can't have that only because he knows that if you have that, you'll have something good. Your eyes will be opened. Don't you want your eyes to be opened? Don't you 
deserve to be like God? That's what he says. He knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. Don't you deserve to have these things? And he's pulling on the lever of pride to try and get Eve to disbelieve what God has said about himself and about her. And even though it seems very different, it's essentially the same approach that Satan took with Job. You remember in in Job chapter 1, the Lord says to the adversary, God, by the way, starts the conversation, have you considered my servant Job? And Job says, yeah, yeah. But stretch out your hand against all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, why does Job, I'm sorry, why does Satan think that that attack will work? Why does he think that uh, taking away what what Job has and then eventually uh, even attacking his own body, why does he think that that will make Job curse God to his face? Well, he thinks, or he hopes at least, that when Job sees these new circumstances that he's in, when he loses everything he's ever held dear, when he loses his own health, eventually he will think that God has been unfair with him. It's pride. I deserve better than this. Strike his body, and Job will see it as an injustice, and in his pride, he will rise to his own defense, and he will declare God is a monster. It's the same approach. Never mind that God has revealed himself as the only one who is worthy of praise and honor, the only sovereign who who does and disposes with humanity and all of creation as he will. He is the one who is in charge, but Satan is betting that he can pull on that pride and get Job to disbelieve all that he knows already about who God is. And it didn't work out the way that Satan was hoping, but it did reveal exactly what he was after. Satan's goal, always, is to get humanity to reject what God has revealed about himself, and he does it by tempting us to think that we know better, or to think that we deserve better, or to think that we can get better than what God is giving us. And so this is where we we have to begin, because this helps us to understand the way that Christ fights these temptations. We have to begin by saying that what Satan wants is to incite you to a prideful disbelief of God and his word. That is his aim. Satan wants nothing else in all of your temptations than to get you to ask that same question that he posed to Eve, has God really said? Now, we, we spent a lot of time establishing this point of Satan's goal, but hopefully you see where we're headed. If it's true, if it's true that that is what Satan wants, that he wants to lead us away from God and his word, by whatever temptation possible, into prideful disbelief, if that's true, then Jesus' victory is measured almost completely by his willingness to humble himself under God's word. To believe not what his temptations are telling him, not what his own flesh might be telling him, though different than ours, we struggle with an inward bent towards sin, and Christ didn't have that, although he did have fleshly weaknesses like hunger. But Jesus' victory is is counted, if this is actually what Satan is doing, Jesus' victory is counted almost exclusively in the way that he is willing to submit himself and to believe what God has said about him. And we see that as we walk through and and look at the temptations that he faced. Consider the first temptation. Satan says, sorry, there's a needle sticking right up in the, sorry. Um, (laughs) 
Satan says, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And what's the temptation? Well, it's an appetite temptation. Right? There is this hunger. Uh, Jesus is hungry, and, and the devil suggests bread. Uh, but you need to see Jesus' response and see the way that his response makes it clear that it's, it's really about more than just an appetite. This is not a bad appetite. Hunger is a good thing. Hunger is a good appetite that the Lord has given us to drive us to, to eat when we need to eat. And yes, in other temptations, it gets out of order, but this isn't a bad thing. But Jesus' response says, no, no, this temptation is about much more than do I need to eat right now. This temptation is really about self-fulfillment. Satan is pulling on that lever of pride. How far is Jesus willing to go in order to provide for himself what the Father might be denying him? And so he says, if you're the Son of God, and we spoke about this last week, he's not trying to get Jesus to, to disbelieve or to doubt that he is the Son of God. He's getting him to presume. He's trying to get Jesus to presume upon his Son of Godness. Yes, he is the Son of God. He is the, uh, the preexistent incarnate one. And here he is walking around a desert for 40 days with nothing to eat, an empty pit in his stomach. I know some of you may have fasted before. Some of you may have gone without food for a while. But believe me, after 40 days, Jesus is beyond that wonderful feeling of euphoria, right? Where, where the, the hunger pains actually die down after a few days, and you stop that ravaging, sort of uh, hungering, searching for food everywhere. He's well beyond that. He is at the stage where if he had any fat reserves at all, they are long gone. His body is breaking down his muscles and his organ tissues just to stay alive. And everything in his body, his human flesh, is saying, this is what we need. And Satan comes, and the devil's temptation is simple. Why are you waiting for God to provide for you? Aren't you hungry? Don't you want something to eat? It's just a little thing. If you can turn 200 gallons of water into wine for somebody else, can't you take this little rock and turn it into a dinner roll for yourself? Isn't that what you deserve? The Son of God shouldn't be hungry. The Son of God shouldn't have to wait. The Son of God shouldn't have to hunger and suffer. And notice the way that Jesus responds to this temptation to self-fulfillment. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was Jesus doing? He was believing God's revelation about himself. Yes, he was hungry, and the devil is whispering, his stomach is screaming to do it, but, but yet Jesus trusted. This was not a victory of willpower. It was a victory of faith. Jesus overcame temptation by trusting and believing what the Lord has said. More than meeting his appetites, he humbled himself and he made God's voice speak louder than the voice of temptation. Now, what about the second temptation? Well, the devil moves here from self-fulfillment uh, to self-preservation. He promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world together with their power, together with their glory, and if only Jesus will bow the knee and give the devil his due. Now, the interesting detail, whether or not Jesus actually has uh, the power uh, to grant what he's offering here, whether or not he can actually hand over these kingdoms of the world to whomever he will. The interesting detail is that Satan, again, is promising something good. Extremely good, actually. 
The devil is promising to Jesus something that the Father has already promised to Jesus. Psalm chapter 2. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. The Lord has already promised. Daniel chapter 7, the, the one like a son of man came to the ancient of days, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and peoples and nations should serve him. The devil is trying to tempt Jesus with something that is ultimately good, something that God himself has promised. And I think Satan and Jesus both know what has been promised by the Father. They both know the glory that will belong to Jesus, but I think they also both know what that glory is going to cost. Because the Father has promised that as well. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That was God's promise. That if Jesus continued to do things God's way, if he continued to submit himself to God's will, it would mean being crushed. And they both knew it. And so now the devil offers an easier way. A simpler way to get what was coming to him anyway. And this is perfect salesmanship. He shines a spotlight on the things that you could stand to gain and he minimizes the cost. You go to buy that used car, and, and no offense to any used car dealers, but uh, what's the line? Let's not talk about financing. Let's talk about features. How good is it going to feel to crank that sunroof and to hit that pedal and cruise, and I can get you in this thing today. Just sign right here. We'll, we'll worry about everything else on the other side of it, and that's what, what, the, Satan, what uh, the devil is doing. You can have it all. The emphasis is on all. It can be yours. I can give it all to you, and oh, by the way, you'll... You'll just have to bow the knee. It's a small thing, really. Just a little compromise. You may remember through our studies in Revelation that that was the same temptation that came to many of the believers in the Roman Empire. It's just, it's just a little compromise. It's just a pinch uh, of incense. It's just a prayer to Caesar, and you can have a trade. You can be part of us. You can be safe. The same temptation that comes to believers in Brunei, in Somalia, in North Korea, in Bangladesh. You can be safe. You can keep your head. You just have to keep your mouth shut. You just have to send your children to the mosque and don't teach them about Jesus. Just send them off and let somebody else teach them about Allah. And it's just, it's just a little thing, isn't it? You can preserve yourself, and don't you deserve, don't your children deserve that? What a shame when that same temptation comes to us in a different way, and the stakes are so much lower. What are our stakes? You can have peace over Christmas dinner, and you cannot cause a conflict. Just don't come in here talking about Jesus and sin and being born again, because we've already heard it, and we don't want to hear it again. It's the same temptation, isn't it? You can preserve yourself, and don't you deserve a little bit of ease, a little bit of comfort? Oh, Jesus' response is sobering. He knows. He knows exactly what his obedience is going to cost him. He knows the humiliation. He knows the suffering. He knows the striking and the spitting and the pulling of the beard. He knows the whips and the cross and the thorns and the blood and the pain. He knows all of it. 
It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. He chooses to believe God's word. He chooses to trust God's path. It's a victory of faith. He chooses to believe what God has said and what God is doing. And then there's the third temptation. The devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and they stand there on the edge, and he begins to quote Scripture into his ear. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, interestingly, Satan is quoting Scripture in context. He's totally misapplying it, but he's quoting it in context. And if you went back and you read Psalm 91, where Satan is quoting, you would say, yeah, that, that could very well be messianic. It's certainly a promise for the Lord to protect those who are his, and especially in the shadow of the Most High, in the, in the shelter of the temple. And so it's no uh, coincidence that he takes him to the temple, and here we are where God's promises are real and active, and why don't you test it a little bit? Some people think that Jesus uh, is being tempted here to prove himself. The thinking is, you know, Jesus jumps down into the courtyard and he forces God's hand and, and the Lord will send angels to whisk him up and keep him safe and then uh, joy and rejoicing because all of the priests and the entire Sanhedrin will have no choice but to acknowledge that this is the Savior they've been waiting for. And some think that the temptation is for Jesus to prove himself, but that's not what's happening and we can tell by Jesus' response. Jesus' response has nothing to do about proving who he is, but Jesus' response has everything to do with proving who the Father is and what the Father has promised. Now, Jesus responds by quoting half of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, but here's the whole reference, ready? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, if you want, you could go back, you could read the whole sordid tale of Massa and Meribah in Exodus chapter 17, uh, but it was, uh, Massa was one of the first places that the people of God quarreled against the Lord when they were in the wilderness. Uh, the name Massa actually means testing, uh, and it was named after the fact that they tested God in the wilderness. It was the first place that uh, the Lord provided water from the rock that followed them, but uh, the whole thing is summarized in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. It says, Moses called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is what we're after in Jesus' response. This is what testing means. It means to make ultimatums of the sovereign Lord. It means perhaps even to put yourself in a situation where God's hand will be forced to prove whether he is actually with you or not with you. It is reversing the role of, of who calls the shots between God and man. It is trying to make God our errand boy and trying to see if he will put out and he will wet the fleece that we put out for him. It's a testing of the Lord. It was in the wake of uh, the housing crash of 2008 that the American people found out that there were certain banks in America that were, quote, too big to fail, right? They had their hands in too many things, they, they were involved in too much of the economy, and if they were allowed to fall, they would drag the entire economy down with them. That's the temptation that Satan is giving to Jesus. You're too big to fail. 
Let's see if God will come to your rescue. Let's see just how important you are. Most likely, they're standing on uh, the southeastern side of the temple, overlooking the Kidron Valley, which ran straight down 450 feet, a sheer cliff face. And they're standing there, and Satan is suggesting, uh, if God cares about you at all, there's no way he could let you fall from here. It would be too costly. And God loves you, right? So let's, let's see how important you are to the Father. And what's Jesus' response? Well, he refuses. He doesn't need any feats of of rescue to believe what God has said because God has just said what he thinks of the Son, didn't he? He was full of the Spirit and came up out of the Jordan where the Lord had said, you are my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's enough. Just that one statement. He doesn't need to force God's hand. He doesn't need to see some uh, magnificent uh, work, some miraculous work to prove what God has said. He's willing to humble himself and to believe that the Lord cares for him. This is Jesus' victory. The devil tried to draw Jesus, just like he tries to draw you and me, uh, into a prideful distrust of God's word. He tempted him with self-fulfillment and self-preservation and self-importance. And at each turn, Jesus deflected those devices. Now, a simplistic way of understanding all this would say, well, Jesus was able to overcome because he really knows his Bible. And he does. It's there, and and the scriptures are on his tongue and ready. He has clearly hidden God's word in his heart, and the thinking is that, well, what we need to do is just to know God's word more and more and more, and that's important. I think it's much more significant to say that Jesus overcame temptation not just because he knew God's word, but because he believed God's word, because he was willing to humble himself under God's word. Jesus' triumph came through submitting his will to the word of God and humbly believing what he had said. Now, finally, uh, we are able to consider our pattern. Because if this is how Satan works, and if, if this is how the devil can be overcome, then the Lord is teaching us the same thing. How should we uh, overcome the schemes of the evil one? Will we do it the way that the Lord has shown us? And again, a few Uh, concrete steps that we can take to follow the Lord. First is that we must be filled with the Spirit. Granted, this isn't something that we do. Step one, be filled. No, no, you can't do that. That's something the Lord does in you and for you and through you as he, He calls you to Himself, as He grants the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there is no power and no desire, really, to resist the schemes of the evil one until the Holy Spirit has filled us until the Lord is is working His supernatural gift of faith in His people. It can't be done, and you don't even want to do it. There's no coincidence that that Luke repeats twice in this passage the, the presence of the Spirit. Jesus was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. That's where Jesus' power to resist the evil one came from. And that's the very first thing that we need. When the Spirit fills your heart, there is a change. There is a hope because the Spirit begins to work new obedience. He gives us strength to fight the schemes of the devil. Martin Luther was once asked how it was that he resisted temptation. And his response was was classic Luther. He said, well, it's easy. When Satan comes to knock on my heart with temptation, the Holy Spirit answers. And he says, I'm sorry, Martin doesn't live here anymore. And that's what we need. 
The same spirit that worked victory in Jesus Christ, the same spirit that clothed him with power from on high to resist the schemes of the evil one works in the hearts of those who are his to call us to new obedience. And so we need to be filled with the spirit. We also need to draw near to the Lord. The text indicates that that Satan came to Jesus when he was physically at his weakest. He hadn't eaten anything for 40 days. He was very hungry. We've seen that. But I think the devil naively thinks that at this point, Jesus is going to be easy pickings. But what he doesn't count on is the fact that, that at this point, perhaps, we might say that Jesus' relationship with the Father, in his earthly life at least, his relationship with the Father has never been stronger. What has Jesus been doing, walking around in the desert for 40, years, 40 days, rather, not eating anything? Well, he's been fasting. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline, and Matthew's gospel makes that very clear. He was walking in the desert for 40 days, and he was fasting. He was praying. He was in communion with the Lord. He'd been out in the wilderness day and night, depending on God and praying to God and meditating on God's word, and he'd been out there proving the words of Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food when I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate upon you in the watches of the night. Now, I know that from time to time we can get awfully legalistic about how are you doing with your quiet time lately. And and I'm not suggesting that there's some sort of magic formula that like for every 10 minutes of time you spend in prayer each day, you can resist exactly 6.8 temptations of the evil one. It doesn't work that way. It's not a legalistic sort of equation that we can write out. But there is a correlation, isn't there? There is a correlation by the time that we spend communing with God and the amount of delight that we have in Him. There is a direct correlation between the way that we delight in the Lord and our willingness to believe what He has said. Maybe I'm the only parent in the room that finds it really easy to tell my children outlandish things because I know that they trust me. And they do. They're getting older and they're starting to figure things out, but I found myself just yesterday thinking, oh, what are we doing at that table? Oh, we're giving it away. I'm putting it in the basement. But, you know, they trust me. They know me because they, they have a relationship with me. And the closer our relationship is, the more they trust me. And isn't that the same between us and the Lord? That the more we commune with him, the more willing we are to listen to his word instead of our own so-called wisdom. That's the dynamic that we find in the New Testament. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, James says in chapter 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And they're juxtaposed there. Resist the devil, draw near to God. And they ought to be simultaneous. How do we resist the devil? We draw near to the Lord. We submit ourselves to who he is and and what he teaches us and the way he will lead us. And could it be that if your temptations are more than you can bear, could it be that you've forgotten what it is to draw near to God and simply have fellowship with him? Could it be that if the devil seems to have more time and more opportunities to drag you into temptation, that it might be because you haven't met together with the Lord in, oh, longer than you can remember. It's not an equation, but there is a correlation here. 
How do we resist the schemes of the evil one? We draw near to the Lord just like Jesus did. And spiritual disciplines are incredibly important. And our communion with the Lord, and the pastor's not going to bring a checklist and say who's been naughty and nice and who's had a quiet time today. That's not the point, but the point is do you spend time listening to him and speaking to him and cultivating your relationship with him? Do you love the Lord and do you trust what he said? So this is the pattern that we've received from the Savior. Strength to resist the evil one comes as we are filled with the Spirit and as we draw near to God and as we hide God's word in our heart. Folks, rest assured, the devil will always have an easier time tempting someone to disbelieve God's word when they don't even know what God's word has said in the first place. But almost as good, at least so far as as Satan is concerned, almost as good as the Christian who knows God's word generally, but doesn't know it specifically, and might even know how it applies to the sins of somebody else, but has no idea how to turn the scalpel upon their own heart. And this calls for a little bit of diligence here. This calls for discernment. It calls for hard work. We need to be a little bit more specific. Here's where we ought to know not only how to read God's word, but we need to know how to use it to answer the sins that we struggle with. And that takes hard work. That means that if you don't know God's word very well, you need to get better acquainted with it. Perhaps you need to find someone else who knows God's word, and you can say, I'm struggling with this. What can I read? What promises of God do I need to hear? What commands do I need to remember? Are you the kind of person that struggles with sins of the tongue? Are you always tempted to to shoot off some sort of uh, word of contempt at everybody who crosses you the wrong way? Memorize James 3. There's a good place to start. Do you struggle with sexual immorality? Study 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Are you tempted to slothfulness and to ease? Read Proverbs 26. Do you struggle with discontentment? Philippians chapter 4. And you can go on and on and on, but the point is that what we need to do to fight the sins that we are tempted to is to hear what God's Word has said and to use that to expose just how wicked all those temptations are. So that when Satan comes and he whispers in your ear and he says, it's just a little thing. You can say, no, the Lord has said, flee from sexual immorality. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't give it any quarter. This is what God has said, and I will listen to him and not to my temptation. And once you have found those places, once you're studying those places, pray to God that he would enable you to forge an incredible bond between where you are tempted and what he has said about those temptations. Give yourself, as Christ clearly had, to the hard work of hiding God's word, not just in your mind, not just on an index card that you can put on your dashboard so you see it all the time. Hide God's word in your heart. Study it and read it and pray it and memorize it and do not stop until you have internalized the message of what God is saying about the heinousness of our sin. This is what Christ has done. He did it as a man. He did it in human flesh. He did it inspired and and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he calls us to do the same. This is the way that we deal with our temptations. We follow the pattern the Lord has given us. Now, one final word. 
And that is that if you struggle to resist the devil and you find yourself failing over and over and over again, if your temptations to sin become temptations to discouragement, you can also believe God's word and overcome that, but that means that you need to seek out those places that remind you that it will not always be like this. Places like Luke chapter 4. Places that remind us of the victory of Jesus and the binding of Satan. Places that remind us of the everlasting joy of the saints who are perfected in grace. So brothers and sisters, walk with Christ and follow his pattern to resist the schemes of the evil one. But when the struggle is long and when the battle gets hard, remember the one who is tempted for you and fight your temptations in the strength of his humility. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the perfect one, pure and unstained, holy in every way. And you, in the person of Christ, have come to be tempted to do battle with Satan, to have victory on our behalf, and to teach us and to fill us with your Spirit and empower us that we might resist with you. Oh Lord, not because we can save ourselves by being perfect and resisting temptation, but because we are yours, because the battle is won, because the tactics have been exposed, and you are the one who is guarding our hearts. Oh, help us to believe this. More than our sin, help us to believe it. More than our discouragement, help us to believe it. More than the temptations of the evil one, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to a table which proclaims the victory of Christ on behalf of all of his saints. We read the words of institution uh, in Mark chapter 14. It tells us that as Christ was eating with his disciples, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what do we find at this table? As Christ shared with his first disciples, we find a cup and we find bread. Symbols, signs of Jesus' blood spilled and his body broken. Symbols of the one who was crushed and in being crushed, crushed the head of the serpent. Symbols of the one who now sits risen again, vindicated in righteousness and holiness, resurrected on the third day, risen to the right hand of the Father who now sits with him and says these symbols not only point to what I have done, but the promise of the table that I'm setting for you. And those who are mine, I will keep. That's the promise of this table. Between what I have done and what I am promising for you, I will keep those who are mine. I will sustain you in every temptation. I will lead you in every sin that you are tempted to go astray. And I'll be with you, he says, to the end of the age. This is the promise that we find at this table. It is for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. 
It's for those who have joined themselves to his church where this sacrament is administered. If you are not yet believing in God's word that we see here spoken to us, do not come to this table. If you're not believing in Christ who is the savior of all of his people and who has done all that is needed to secure our righteousness in himself, please do not yet come to this table. Consider whether the Lord is calling you to himself to come and rejoice in his victory on your behalf. Please join me in prayer. O gracious Lord our God, we thank you for this table and we pray that you would use these bare and earthly elements, set them aside for a holy use. You, by your Spirit, working in the hearts of your people, would draw the eyes of our faith to you. That you would fill us with hope in believing in Christ and that you would keep us until that final day. We pray that you would do this and give us fellowship with yourself and with one another, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ said, this is my body broken for you. 
Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Christ said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you that you have not counted the sins of your people against them, not treated us as our sins deserve, but have laid them on Christ, our substitute, our Savior, our victorious King, have clothed us with the righteousness that was due to him and has been imputed to your people. Thank you, O Lord, for your marvelous gift, which is more than we could ever repay, and a thousand eternities of worshiping in your presence. 
Thank you for the gift of yourself given to us. Thank you for the way that you give your spirit to lead us, and we pray that you would continue to do that until that day when we are kept and brought to yourself to eat and drink in the kingdom of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response today in the Green Trinity Hymnal is number 200. It came upon a midnight clear. Won't you stand as we sing hymn number 200? <laughs> 